this idea of rooted, this idea of doctrine that we're in. For me, I really believe that doctrine is incredibly exciting. But for some of you, you might hear the word doctrine and you're like, oh man. Listen, when we talk about the doctrines that we believe, these, these truths that have withstood the test of time, these are the anchor points for our life and eternity. Can I hear an amen on that? These are not things that are up for debate. These are not things that change with shifting sands in society. These are the things you can build your life on. And that's why it's so exciting. I believe as you understand these truths and you become rooted in these truths, it doesn't matter about the famine out there or the heat of the sun or persecution or in the shifting sands or storms that are going to go on, you will overcome and you will pass these truths on to your children and your grandchildren because the church of Jesus Christ will continue. Amen. And so I want you to open up your heart, if you would, please, and to kind of let me just be a teacher for you this morning. I love being funny. By the way, I, I, my kids don't think I'm funny. I think I'm hilarious. <laughs> I love telling you stories. I love getting you all excited. I love it when handkerchiefs come out and people wave them and they get all like, whoa, it's wonderful. But you know, sometimes we need to put a thinking cap on. Sometimes we need to hear not just to be moved in excitement and emotion, but you need your roots to grow down deep. And you need your faith to be solid. In this culture, in this generation, I genuinely believe that the Lord gave me a directive to teach these fundamental truths so that you have confidence when you're out there in the world, in the media onslaught of media, the onslaught of social media, the onslaught of people's opinions pressing down on you, the church must be strong. The church must believe strong. They must know who they are and what they believe so it can't be taken away and you won't accept a counterfeit. Amen. That's the other part of this thing. Too many people are making up their own churches now. They're making up their own belief of who God is and who Jesus is. I feel like God's like this. I don't care what you feel God is like. I want God to tell me who he is. I want to say yes to what he says about himself, not to your opinion of what God is like. Amen. Which is why these things are exciting and they're so valuable and so true. So Matthew chapter 13 Verse 6, Jesus is teaching a parable about seeds being sown. And here he's talking about this idea of being rooted. He talks about plants soon wilting under the hot sun since they don't have deep roots. You're not going to be one of those plants. Somebody say amen. amen. You're not going to get burned by the sun. You're not going to get uprooted by a storm because you have deep roots. Verse 19, if you jump to verse 19, he goes on. And he says, the seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message about the kingdom and don't understand it. The evil one comes and snatches it away. The seed, was planted, the seed that was planted in their hearts. Now I want to point out in there how the devil loves to steal what you don't understand, what you don't digest. That's why it's important when we talk, we talk about why does this matter to you? Why does this why is this important in your life as a single parent, as a person working, you know, 80 hours a week at your job, as a, you know, in this generation, why does this matter to you? Understanding. It's not just hearing, it's understanding what you're hearing. 
And so as we teach these truths, these principles, these doctrines, my hope is that you understand them so they can get deeply rooted inside of you so the devil cannot snatch it away. Verse 20, the seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message, immediately receive it with joy, but since they don't have deep roots, there it is again, they don't last long. They fall away. As soon as they have problems, as soon as they are persecuted for believing the word, and that is why these truths become so key. There is a persecution to the Word of God in this generation. And that's not me trying to over-glamorize it or to try to create fear. Guys, the devil's been trying to stomp out the Word of God since the beginning. This isn't, nor- this isn't, un- this isn't uncommon. But we have to know what we believe, and we have to be able also to share it. That's the other part of understanding, because there's people out there asking questions. And they want answers, and you are now empowered to answer their questions. So today, we're going to be talking about the one true God. Say, one true God. And I love this, the deity of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Don't you love that? That just sounds so anti, like, cool culture church. You know what I'm saying? Like, you just don't hear, like, you know, cool church going, we're talking about the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it feels so good. It feels so good to talk about truth and to talk about the Word of God and to talk about the one true God and Jesus Christ is God. He's deity, amen. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. He's not a t-shirt you wear or on a coffee mug. He is God in the flesh. And where is that in your Bible? That's what you're going to find out today. And how does that line of thinking work? And why does it matter? Who cares? You're going to care. Come on now. Let's talk about the one true God. The one true God has revealed himself as eternally self-existent, the I am, the creator of heaven and earth and the redeemer of mankind. He has further revealed himself embodying, as embodying the principles of relationship and association as Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's a doctrine that we believe. It's captured in that paragraph. I'll read it to you one more time. And my notes, by the way, are always in the Calvary Orlando app. If you go underneath sermons, you'll see notes. And so if you ever have a hard time keeping up with me, I give you the notes in the app. But this is what it says. This is the doctrine rolled up into a paragraph. The one true God has revealed himself as the eternally self-existent. Doesn't need anybody's help. Amen. If you have a God that requires outside energy or outside support, he's not God. Our God is the God. Amen. Self-existent, I am the creator of heaven and earth. He's not only the creator, he's the redeemer of mankind. Isn't that wonderful that he's not just God, he's not just almighty, he's not just this God out there. He redeems. He, the word redeem means he's, he's bought back the fallen race. He's given us the ability to be brought back into relationship with him. He is, that means he's the redeemer, which means he's the initiator of the redemption. Wow! God Almighty, we were lost. We, our relationship was broken from the self-existent one. He doesn't require us to exist, but he desires us. He desires us, so then he initiates a plan that we call the plan of redemption, to buy us back, to purchase us from our fallen sin, and to bring us into right standing and relationship with him. Creator of heaven and earth, redeemer of mankind. He has then further revealed himself 
is embodying the principles, relationship, and association as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So let's talk about the one true God. Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 6, verse 4, right in your Bibles. Deuteronomy, that's the Old Testament, chapter 6, verse 4. The Bible says this, Israel heard this from the Lord. This is what their, their creed was. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Or the New Living, I like it, it says, the Lord our God is the Lord alone. There is no other God above him, amen. There is no higher God. There is no greater God. There is no other God. That's the other thing. He's not just the greatest God of many gods. He is the only God. The devil is not God. He may be the God of this world because they worship him, but he is not God. There's only one God. Come on now. One true God. The book of Isaiah, chapter 43, verse 10 and 11. You are my witnesses, O Israel, says the Lord. You are my servant. You have been chosen to know me, believe in me, and to understand that I alone am God. There is no other God. There has never been and there never will be another God. Think about that. Celebrate it. Do you understand? There is no other God. There has never been another God. If you know anything about, like, Greek mythology or other religions around the world, this is very unique. This is unique. This, the idea that God is the only God that's ever been, it's not like he had to win his position. There had never been another God. There never will be another God. He is God alone. And one of the reasons he came into relationship with Israel was so that he could demonstrate who he is to them, and then through that relationship with Israel, the rest of the world would know who he is. Why does this matter to me? You say, Pastor Kevin, it sounds good, but I don't understand why that matters to me. I'm 18 years old. You know, I'm in college. I'm trying to raise some babies here. Why does this matter to me? I'm so glad you asked that question. Let me tell you why it matters to you that the God you serve is the one and only God, the most high God. Please write that down. One and only God, most high God. Why does this matter to you? It matters to you because you're on the winning team. <laughs> Amen. You are connected to the God that is God alone. Amen. You are not missing out on anything when you're in relationship with the one and only God. It matters to you because his is the highest will. His is the highest form of help. Do you understand this? He is the only God. He is God alone. And this God has come to make himself available into your life into your world. He's not one of many gods. He's not a little dummy god that then comes to just serve you. This is the God of the universe, the God that flung the sun, moon, and stars into place. He, through Jesus Christ, says, I am covenanting myself into you, into your life, and into your family. My will is the highest will. My thoughts are the greatest thoughts. My power is the power that holds the universe together. And I am coming into your life, into your marriage, into your home to make myself available to you. You are lacking 
and missing nothing. Amen. The one and only. God, the one and only. And he's saying, I want relationship with you. What? That's why in the book of Psalms, Psalms 8, the angels look at God and say, what in the world is man that you are mindful of him? Why are you thinking about this man thing down there? Because angels know who he is. Angels see him on his throne above the universe, and they say, why are you spending time thinking about mankind? Not only thinking about it, your mind is full of them. And all of your thoughts, all of your intentions, all of your plans are to bring them into relationship with you. Sometimes we don't consider what we're being offered. The God of the universe wants personal relationship with you. He doesn't need it. He is self-existent. You saying yes or no to him doesn't change him at all. People say, well, I don't believe in God, doesn't make God insecure. They rejected me. Is there something wrong with me? But he makes himself available because he wants to. But I want you to see, here's the other thing. When you ask of him, or when he makes a promise to you, he doesn't have to go to another God to get permission. He doesn't have to go to another God to get permission. What he promised you, he has the authority to promise you. Do you hear that? Are you writing this stuff down? You're not going to remember it all. Why does that matter to you as a mom? Why does that matter to you as a business owner? Because that is whose team you're on. That is who's speaking into your spirit. That's the wisdom that you're receiving on your knees as you pray. You ask God to give you wisdom. That's the one the promises are anchored in, the one that has the authority to make those promises. Isn't that awesome? It's so interesting because these things can become so common to us. Look at the children of Israel. Look through the history of the Old Testament. How many times they kept trying to find other gods that were not gods at all. Here, the God of the universe, who, by the way, is parting the Red Sea and who's doing all these things, bringing water out of rocks for them and trying to demonstrate that he has authority over every law on the earth because he made them, that he's the greatest of authority, he's in covenant with them, but yet then they would give all that away and go serve some idol that they made with their hands. Do you understand the capacity that we have to completely miss this truth and to forget about it and to lose its potency and to lose its value? We all have this temptation. Let's not be overestimating of our faith, of ourselves, that we can forget how important, how valuable this truth is that our God is the one and only God. Stop looking for other gods to serve. They do not serve you. They are not gods at all. Even if they make promises to you, they're lying. They don't have the authority to make those promises. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Now, today, we don't necessarily, some people do, they still serve gods of wood, gods of stone, gods of gold, but other people create other gods that they go after, looking for fulfillment, looking for identity, looking for promises. There's only one God. Money is not God. Your business is not your God. Your country and government and society and its mindsets, they cannot be your God. Are you understanding this? There is one God. He is God alone. That's a good place to say amen. It's a good place to realize who you've put your confidence in, who you serve. Amen. 
Have you ever thought about and considered how difficult it would be to have confidence? Because a lot of this is about confidence today. To have confidence trying to please multiple gods with different opinions. You thought about that? Imagine being some of these historical beliefs where there was a god of death, god of fertility, god of harvest, god of whatever, weather, god of who knows what, god of the underworld, god of the overworld, god of the side world, you know? This god wants this, this god wants this. And you're like running around like, I please this god, but I might be letting this god down. I did what this God wanted me to do to be blessed, but this God has another opinion and another idea. It is so wonderful that there's only one God. <laughs> Amen. There's only one. And it's also wonderful that this God has chosen to have love towards us. It's wonderful that he's for you and not against you. And he tells that to you in his word, which he inspired and he wrote so that you would know. It's wonderful that he tells us how to have assurance of relationship with him so that you're not running around. Am I pleasing him? Am I pleasing him? Is this enough? Is that enough? Can I have confidence? I don't know if I can have confidence because I don't know if I've done enough. I don't know if we made him happy. What if today he's, and God gives you his inspired word so that you can have confidence in the one God that you that you stand in right standing with, how to, how to have peace with him, how to have confidence before him, we need to be grateful for this. There's a gratefulness in my heart as I share these things with us today. He didn't have to offer us forgiveness. He didn't have to offer us his word. He didn't have, but look at his nature towards us. He's talking to us. He's communicating with us. He wants you to be blessed. He wants you in right relationship with him. He's doing all the work to get you in right relationship with him so you can have all the benefits of relationship with him. But again, he is the God of all gods. He's God alone. So now let's begin to talk a little bit into the relationship of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a little bit. I'm not going to get into the whole doctrine of the Trinity right now, but I want you to see in Scripture, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 and 19. Matthew 28, verse 18 and 19. Just this description where the three are present together and they have equal authority equal being. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus is speaking of himself. He's been speaking of his authority. And it's all authority. Say all. All authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you see this this equalizing, this, this authority being given, this singular idea that there's one God who's expressing himself through Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 3, verse 22, you can see all three present. They're distinctly separate, but they function and act as one. In Jesus' baptism, Luke chapter 3, verse 22, and you can see Jesus in the water being baptized. You can hear the voice of God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And you can see the filling of the Holy Spirit coming like a dove and resting upon Jesus. And you see these distinctions, but at the same time, this function in unison of authority, deity, and one. So in that, that leads us into the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Can you repeat that after me? Deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm ready to have some fun with Jesus here. I love talking about Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, God in the flesh. And here's why. Why does this matter? Because our world wants to keep shrinking him down to just some other prophet, some holy man, some good teacher. He is not just like a prophet or just like some other holy person. Jesus is God in the flesh. God in the flesh. So let's just talk about his deity here just for a little bit. The Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal, say eternal, Son of God. So let's start at the beginning. The scriptures declare his virgin birth. Write that down. Born of a virgin. The Bible tells us that Jesus was not conceived by the will of man, but by the will of God. I love that. Man did not initiate the coming of Jesus. God did. Because he was going to become the Savior of the world. He's going to be, be God in the flesh. We didn't make this happen. We didn't force God to save us. This all comes from God. Some people act like God doesn't want to save them, like, like you have to convince God to forgive them. Are you kidding? God initiated this whole process of salvation by grace. God wants you forgiven more than you want to be forgiven. God knows the ramifications of your sin more than you know the ramifications of your sin. He's trying to keep you from the eternal death that you can't even conceive. He wants this more than you do. Jesus coming, God coming in the flesh was initiated by the will of God, not by the will of man. We're not trying to get God to do something here. You see what I'm saying? God wanted to. Remember who God is? The God of the universe. The one true God. We boil these things down into little Sunday school lessons and we forget the magnitude of this. Also, the wisdom to do it this way, to see you forgiven of your sin this way, to see you brought in right relationship this way, the wisdom of this comes from the mind of Almighty God. Setting up his church through the foolishness of preaching. Come on. Say, couldn't God think of a cooler way? Oh, he could have but he, this is the coolest way because he's the biggest. He's the best mind. Are you understanding? This is the way he chose to save the world because it's through his wisdom. Amen. The virgin birth, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Write this down. Luke chapter 1, verse 31 and 35. Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin. I love... This has nothing to do with my sermon, but... I want us to see something here. Sometimes we as Christians have a fear of separating ourselves when science says something. Can I, just, can I just sit on this for a second? We get intimidated. People are like, well, science believes this. I don't care what science, because they're just observing what God designed and created. They didn't design it. They didn't create it. And they're trying to understand from the outside. And it's like, we believe God made us, my friends. We believe we didn't come from monkeys. Okay? And you say, whoa, whoa, Pastor Kevin. 
Science says that we came out of a ooze that grew legs and wandered out of the swamp and turned into monkeys. Look, that may be your family line. That's not my family line. <laughs> Are you hearing me? You already believe Jesus was born of a virgin. You've already separated from science. Just go all the way. <laughs> Are you seeing this? That's not my sermon, but it was fun. He was born of a virgin. Number two, he lived a sinless life. Write it in your notes. I'm going to tell you why this matters to you in a minute. Just trust me that it does. He lived a sinless life. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. He is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. He lived a sinless life. I'm going to tell you in a minute why that's important. Also, we want to identify his miracles. So we've said, just talking about the deity of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, sinless life. His miracles attest to it. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. Acts chapter 10, 38. And now... And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. Jesus went around doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So we believe, born of a virgin, we believe sinless life. We believe the miracles that he did testified of his deity. Also, we believe that all of this was setting him up to be the holy sacrifice required for our sin. See, because when he died on the cross and he took all of God's judgment upon himself, he wasn't dying for his own sin. Pastor Kevin, why does this matter to us? Number one, he was born by the will of God, not the will of man. This is God's story. This is God's wisdom. This is God's solution. Number two, he had to be sinless because the penalty and judgment upon him was for us, not for himself. Are you seeing this? There was what's called the substitutionary work on the cross for us. Substitute for what? Substitute for you and me. He died so you could live. He received God's wrath so you could receive God's grace. God turned his back on him so he would never have to turn his back on you. Are you seeing this? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For God made Christ, who never sinned, be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So now you are right with God. Who's God again? The one and only. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Not just with one little demigod, not with just one little... I'm talking the God of gods, the God of only God, the one and only God, creator of heaven and earth, creator of all things, the self-existent one, the eternal one. You've been made right. 
How could a human being make themselves right with God like that? How could we buy our forgiveness? How could we buy our right standing? How could we buy confidence before him? You can't. So the payment had to come from him. The wisdom had to come from him. The holiness had to come from him. He made Christ who knew no sin. He made Christ to become what you were, a sinner, so that you could become what Christ was, righteous before God. It's the great exchange. Are you seeing this? Why does this matter to me? Because he was born of a virgin, sinless, possessing the authority of heaven and earth. He is the only one qualified to be the Savior of mankind. All of those boxes needed to be checked so that he could be the Savior of mankind. There's no other prophet, no other political figure, no other star or famous person that can save your soul. Are you seeing this? None of these people with thousands of followers or millions of followers on social media can save your soul, can die on your behalf, can appease the wrath of God. There's no payment great enough that could come from human hands that could buy off God. We sinned. We fell. We were in broken relationship with God. So the only thing valuable enough to pay in full our sins was the blood of God himself was the life of God himself being poured out. Are you understanding this? Jesus Christ, if you go through his life, if you go through who he is, he's the only one qualified to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's just value Jesus just for a minute. Can you just value Jesus just for a minute? He's not just some religious figure. He's not just some image on a cross you see in church. Look who he is, and look what he made available. Look what he went through, and he did it for you. Why does this matter to you? Because if he didn't do that, you would be lost in your sin. If he didn't do that, you would have no access to the throne of grace. You would have no access to heaven and to eternal life. You would be carrying your own sin because there was no payment made for your sin. This is why it matters. It matters to every tribe and every tongue. It matters, it matters to every man, every woman. It matters to every age group. It matters to every social group, every financial group, every single one of us. These things matter, and they bring you confidence, and they bring you understanding. So when the devil tries to come in and confuse you or lie to you or deceive you or try to pull you away from your God, you have these understandings of who God is, what he's offering to you, and there's nothing like it anywhere in the world. You can compare these truths to any other religion out there, and there's nothing like this, not even close, compared to the one true God and him taking the initiative to save fallen man and doing all the work and offering to you unbroken fellowship and relationship and access to him without you having to go through all these good works and all these things. What we have in Christ really is good news. It's great news. It's the best news. Somebody get excited and say amen about that. All right. Whew. I'm excited about this next part. Here's the next part that's exciting. Ready? It's talking about the deity of Jesus Christ. His bodily resurrection. 
physical resurrection. Not spiritual, not dream world, not prophetic resurrection. Jesus Christ really died, and he really resurrected and came back in flesh and bone. Understand that? This is not like, oh, he died and I had a dream about him being alive, or I had a vision about him being alive. No, this is his physical resurrection from the dead. Does that feel good just to say it, just to think about it? This is not a prophet saying, this is how you get to heaven, this is how you regain eternal life, and then they die, and his writings are the only things that remain. Our Lord and Savior died, went through death, came out the other side, and showed himself to be living. Nothing like it, nothing like it. So that when you die or your loved one dies, we have understanding and eyewitness experience of the one who has conquered death, hell, and the grave. Amen. Matthew chapter 28, verse 6, we see an empty tomb. Just write it down. You can look it up later. Matthew 28, verse 6, where the angel of the Lord says, he is not here. He is what? Risen. Just like he said. Man, it's almost like a cowboy moment, don't you think? It's like Jesus, he's like, he's like, I'm coming back. It's like, you know when the cowboy looks at something and he's like, this, this attitude thing? It's like, he's risen just like he said. It's like he made a statement before he died. You may kill me. It's like, but I'm coming back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. He is risen just like he said. Luke chapter 24, verse 39. Jesus walks through a closed room. The windows are closed. The doors are closed. The disciples are trembling in fear. This is after his resurrection. And Thomas, one of the disciples, had not seen him yet. He was in a position of fear. He was doubting. In steps Jesus. The reason I say the doors were closed, the windows were closed, is because he just appeared. So yet, here's this resurrected, resurrected Christ who is now overcoming like the laws of physics so that's something exciting about that he shows up in the room but then he goes to Thomas and he says Thomas blessed are those who have not seen but yet they still believe but he's not just he's not rebuking Thomas he's just speaking truth to him and then he compassionately says look feel my hands they're real they're flesh they're bone again this is not you know vision dream prophecy this is like Hey, I'm real. I'm here. I'm not a ghost. Bodily resurrection, physical resurrection from the dead. Touch me. Touch my side. I'm real. I'm touchable. I exist. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I will read this to you. It's a long one. Hopefully they'll have it on the screen. 1 Corinthians 15. This is what you just sang in the song, verse 3 through 8. Apostle Paul says, I pass on to you what is most important and what also has been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the Scripture said. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scripture says. And he was seen by Peter. 
and then by the 12, that's the disciples, after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by the apostles. Last of all, I, who had, I, though, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I, Paul, also saw him. So there's this list of over 500 eyewitnesses. And why is he saying this? He's saying this because he was telling them, you know these things to be true. Remember, this gospel message, this message of Jesus rising from the dead, went first to the city of which he died in. So if it didn't really happen, the people who saw him die could easily say, that's a lie. Isn't it interesting that the first place these messages in this gospel went was to the place these events occurred? They could have rode horses 100 miles away and said, oh, over there in Jerusalem, such and such happened, but there was no eyewitnesses to testify against it. No, this gospel started right where it happened. Do you understand the value of this, everybody? Don't get ready for lunch yet. I'm giving you a feast right now. Come on. I'm not done with you yet. These eyewitnesses, he's saying most of these eyewitnesses are still alive. So if you question our message, go talk to those other people. There's over 500, not four, not two prophets in a cave. You know these things to be true, is what he's saying. And you know there's eyewitnesses who've seen the Lord alive. And it's not just Peter, not just the sacred 12, but there's hundreds of them who were present and saw him alive. Finally, the last thing I'll talk about this morning is not only is he physically resurrected, but I want to talk to you about his ascension. We call it the exaltation to the right hand of God. Why does that matter to you? Oh, I'm about to tell you. Jesus' exaltation to the right hand of God. Acts chapter 1, verse 9 and 11 gives you the imagery. It tells you that Jesus, after doing all these things, he ascended and he was caught up into heaven. And the angels of the Lord look down at those that were watching his ascension, and they say, why are you standing here looking up into the clouds? This same Jesus that you saw go, he's coming back. I'm so excited because in this series, we're going to talk about the coming back of the Lord because he's coming. And it matters to you, and it's still happening, and it's still true, and we're closer now than we've ever been. Acts chapter 2, verse 33, talking about the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of God. Now he is exalted, talking about Jesus. Acts chapter 2, verse 33, 33. He is exalted to the place of honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us just as you see and hear today. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor. Say highest honor and gave him a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's ascended to the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the Son radiates God's own glory, expresses the very character of God, he, the Son, sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Why is this important? 
because these verses don't allow us to just treat Jesus like any other person, prophet, or good teacher. These verses don't just leave him as the traveling evangelist in Nazareth, Jerusalem, and he died living a good life. He was a friendly guy. He was self-sacrificing. Wasn't he loving? This goes on to say he was raised bodily, and then he ascended and was seated at the right hand of God in authority and in power. That this Christ at the power of his command holds the world together. That is not some cutesy little savior. That is the Lord and savior. That is the risen God. That is Jesus Christ, deity, authority. This is why these things matter, my friends. Authority, power, might, majesty. This is who he is. In conclusion, Jesus is not like any other teacher, prophet, or holy man. He is revealed in Scripture to be Savior, Lord, and God. Somebody say amen. amen. You cannot take him as a good teacher and prophet and deny what he and the Scriptures declare him to be. He is God. If you reject him, you reject God. If you minimize him, you minimize God. If you refuse him, you're refusing God. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by the ministry of Calvary Orlando. We invite you to join us in person at Calvary Orlando for one of our Sunday morning worship experiences each Sunday at 1030 a.m. To find out more about Calvary, please visit our website at calvaryorlando.org. Here you can find our latest events and ministry opportunities. Thanks for listening and God bless.